0: From the International Association of Marriage and Family Counselors, I'm Robert Caceres, and this is The Reframe. Today's guest is Dr. Victor Yalom. Dr. Yalom is a licensed psychologist specializing in couples and group therapy, and he's the president and founder of psychotherapy.net. He's conducted international workshops on a variety of psychotherapy topics, and he spoke with me about his ongoing efforts to grow and improve as a clinician, stressing the importance of personal reflection and self-acceptance.
1: I am never going to be, you know the most warm and fuzzy person or therapist, but I do care about other people and can find ways to connect. At the same time, I I think we do have an obligation to ourselves and our clients to work on and deepen and strengthen those areas, which we think are deficits. And I think I've tried to do that, but also to accept who we are. And by, by accepting the fact that, uh, okay, I'm I'm a little bit in my head, and I'm not uh, like some other therapists, but I am like myself. Just accepting that has allowed me to, I think, be more comfortable in my skin, and, and be warmer, and let people experience me as
0: I am. Welcome to The Reframe. Over the next hour, You'll hear Dr. Yalom discuss his strategies for helping clients become more present and go deeper in therapy sessions, describe what his experiences as a client taught him about the power of the therapeutic relationship, and describe the importance of inviting and receiving honest feedback from clients. Dr. Yalom also describes how, as a young person, he didn't necessarily embody the qualities of a natural-born therapist.
1: I think some therapists had the experience growing up that they were just caretakers, that they were attentive to the needs of others, that friends in high school would always come up to them to bounce ideas off or to share their problems and just to be perfectly honest that wasn't my experience.
0: Victor began our conversation by discussing what initially inspired him to produce therapy training videos.
1: I think like many things in life, uh, uh, large and small, we kind of stumble onto them and sometimes sometimes they lead to something interesting and sometimes they lead to absolute failure and hopefully we learn from that uh uh, in my case i you know finished up my doctoral studies i uh, realized at that point that that was just the beginning of of my journey and i think all of our journeys as therapists and i happened to uh kind of connect with a, a mentor uh, uh, a psychologist named James Bugenthal who who, who adapted the, the term or uh, an existential humanistic uh, psychologist or psychotherapy and I thought he was quite brilliant in a lot of ways and masterful as a as a therapist and part of his work and training was was a lot of demonstration so I uh, there was a whole group of us studying with him, uh, which was really nice to have kind of some sense of uh, community in our in our professional and personal development, and uh, he was getting older, like we all are, but he was 80, and we kept saying, we got to get this guy on, on film, uh, on tape. At that time, it was tape, and... Uh, Nothing happened, so finally, a buddy and I got together and recruited a couple volunteer clients who were willing to be on camera, and had him film a couple sessions with each of these clients, and ended up taking that and editing it and putting it on a, on a VHS tape and uh, making it available to to clinicians. Um, my my primary goal was just to uh, preserve, you know, capture. What I thought was a true master, and make it available to to therapists out in the world that didn't have the opportunity to, to uh, study with him personally. So that was kind of the genesis of how I got into, got into this.
0: What was some of the initial feedback you got from those first p- few privileged people who got to listen or view those tapes to begin with?
1: Huh. Well, that's that's an interesting question. Um, well, I, I think the the first people who saw it was our circle of. Of therapists, you know, he had a group of, th- he had a number of, uh, he did yearly trainings, kind of five day intensive trainings, then he had a number of consultation groups. So he had a local, you know, he had a list of uh, maybe 200 therapists that studied with him, you know, pretty intensively over different periods of time. So I uh, did an early form of crowdsourcing, it turns out. Uh, uh, this was 1995, so just email was just you know hardly happening. Uh, I sent out a snail mail letter to uh, these 200 or so people on his mailing list and said, "Hey, I'd like to, I'd like to produce a, a videotape of, of of Jim, as he was known to his friends and cohorts, and uh, if you could help out, uh, you know." Chip in 60 bucks, I'll get you an advanced copy of this at a discounted price. So uh, that's, and I got about, you know, 50, 60 people to do that. And that kind of paid at least for some of the initial recording costs. So that's kind of uh, before the crowdsourcing as we know it. So I think, uh, I don't recall any specific feedback, but I know many people that have watched him, either worked with him or watched the video. First video I produced of him called Existential Humanistic psychotherapy in action which showed two sessions with this client Marie and discussion uh, with him and a, a group group of us uh, trainees was how present he was with the client and how attentive he was to the nuances of all of her behavior you know not just the words she spoke but the her facial expressions, her implicit uh, relationship with herself and with, with him, uh, her body language. Uh, he uh, really championed this idea of presence, therapist presence and client presence. And this was before mindfulness kind of became fashionable and, and popular but he had spent probably 30 40 years writing about and promoting this idea of presence and there's a lot it's a it's a there's a lot to say about it because it's not uh, you know mindfulness people say um, but when you ask therapists well how do they use mindfulness in their sessions you know you get a variety of, of disparate answers uh, but he had some very specific ideas about how do you help clients become more present more attuned to themselves and how do you help therapists become more present and more attuned uh, To their clients in a way that allowed for a real depth of exploration Uh, he termed it searching
0: Well, could you tell me more about your process of becoming more present as you were a novice therapist kind of exploring that for yourself and what that looked like?
1: I think i I can just get clear talking about what what I learned from him, and then I've certainly learned other things. Uh, his focus was to help clients you know achieve explore greater realms of their own inner experience or subjectivity. And he had some very specific techniques for helping them do that. Um, so maybe a good way to example, you ask a client kind of how you're doing, and they'll tell you, yeah, I'm doing okay, or I've had a bad week, or you know, and then you might uh, traditional kind of stock in our know, stocking trade of questions, what but yeah, how are you feeling right now? And clients may say, Yeah, I'm feeling kind of down. I, I had a bad week, I, I had this bad thing happen at work, or I had a fight with my girlfriend. And then if you're really tuned in, you're noticing they're not really very present they're back to telling you some story about what happened or what they've already thought about themselves you know yeah i'm feeling depressed yeah i i always kind of get you know i tend to do this a lot i have a hard time you know they're make or they're making general statements about themselves or formulations that they've already thought and what he taught me and 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 those that study with him How do you help clients move beyond that so that they're actually in tune with something now, in the moment? And how are they deepening their exploration? And ultimately, can they discover in the moment something new, some new awareness, some new idea, some new sensation, some bodily image, you know? And so they're very... Because that's what you want. You, you want a sense of freshness, aliveness, newness. I mean I recall from my first real therapy experience as a client in college just being amazed that you know I was kind of probably not unusual for people in our field, you know, that I was a pretty introspective person and had my own struggles and had journaled and thought about myself endlessly and you know thought I knew myself pretty well and that I would go into a single session and come out of a session most of the time i uh, had a you know this was a th- good therapy experience that feeling like i have a slightly new awareness or insight or experience of myself and that was amazing to me like that i'd thought about these problems and journaled about them for you know years decade and yet in in one session i was able to have a slightly new experience or angle not not dramatic not hollywood but something new um, so I think that's the goal in every session is to help a client have some kind of new experience. And um, his techniques for helping that were very specific. We're often making process comments. I notice you smiled when you said that, or I noticed your voice went down. Ways of drawing people into their own external experience. Um, and then they often don't know how to do that very well. So you need to do, have more in your toolbox than just saying, how do you feel? Because some clients can just have real open access and, and can just take the ball and run with it. But many clients don't. They say, oh, I feel kind of sad. Uh, yeah, and then they go back to telling their stories. So there are very, you know, ways that you can deepen, enhance that, what he called the search process. So if they say, you know, a very powerful tool that he he would use is is the word and, they'd say, yeah, I, I feel sad. And he'd say maybe, well, what do you notice in your body as you say that? And they'd say, yeah, I feel a little tightness in my chest. And then they look at you. And the implicit in their look is, okay, doc, now tell me what to do or ask me another question. Kind of a ping pong match, which is more everyday conversation that, you know, I say something, you say something, I say something, you say something, but his message and his direction of the client is tell me more. And he might just say, and, and implicit in and was keep going, what do you notice when you focus on your chest? Or what do you notice when you focus on that sadness? And I, guess, I wanna, I guess go back to it because your question I think was, how did I learn to be more present? So one way was by helping clients to be more present and to do inner searching. To really do that well, you've got to be present. You've got to really be tuned into them. And ultimately tuned into your own experience of them because a lot of what uh, I think are real sensitive, you know, we are our instrument, as is often said, and a part of our sensitivity is tuning into what, what gets triggered in us, you know, does, does, uh, you know, if the client says, yeah, I'm sad, but they feel kind of distant, do you feel their sadness or you not. And you might, you're not going to just blurt it out, whatever you feel, but to tune into yourself. So as one additional source of data, what you look at, what you see, what you hear, what you notice, and what you feel. Uh, so in terms of uh, others, certainly my father, Irvin Yalam, I've just been grateful and to have him as a father and as a mentor. And so Certainly, in group therapy, which was his, his original major contribution in the field, was tuning in and attending to what goes on between clients in a group, uh, and I could, you know, go tell a lot about that. But um, with the idea that what happens in a in a well-functioning, interpersonally oriented therapy group is you're attending to what happens in the relationship between clients in a group with the idea that whatever interpersonal struggles they have in their life if they have a hard time forming intimate relationships if they tend to be abrasive if they tend to be shy and have a hard time getting their own needs met if they have a tendency to be a helper and always attend and help other people but not really get their you know get help themselves whatever their interpersonal patterns were blind spots, those are going to get reenacted in the group. If, if you lead a group in that way, it's very different than I think a lot of groups that are maybe more uh, psychoeducational or uh, didactic or something like that. But so I learned, you know, first thing I learned from him is about that group model and you're attending to what happens interpersonally between the clients and you're ultimately helping them have those interactions between each other. And then you're noticing what's happening and and trying to teach them to give each other feedback. Um, anyway, I don't want to, we could spend hours talking about group therapy, but what in my understanding he did is he took that knowledge, that powerful, uh, experiential uh, model, and used a lot of it in in individual therapy, where he you know he's known for his some of his writings, uh, loves executioner, where he really explores the relationship between therapist and client, and in a similar way, uses his experience of the client to reflect back to them what are areas that may be problematic to them. Um, so. I learned a lot about that. How do you work interpersonally and relationally in individual psychotherapy? Um, and again, the commonality there I see is trying to make something happen and attend to what's happening in the therapy to make it as alive as possible. And I. Th- I think we all know, I think we feel intuitively whether it's in our kind of theoretical model or not. We know in, in what you know, a good session something is happening, something tangible, visceral is happening. We're not just going through the motions, they're not just going through the motions. We're not just doing worksheets or you know, explanations. Those may be helpful as part of therapy, but there's some sense of vitality and aliveness. Yeah. Uh, in, in any session that that's that's really productive or powerful.
0: That's a hallmark of like a really strong working alliance, and yet there are times where it may just feel like it's going through the motions. How do you kind of moderate those polar experiences? Since, and at least in my experience, not every session can feel like oh man, this is really hitting the mark.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, first is to be attentive to that. And like part of being attentive is to being open to your experience, you know, cause some, yes, yeah, sure. I mean, most sessions are not, you know, just by, by, if you look at a normal distribution, you're gonna have some great sessions and you're gonna have some sucky sessions and you're gonna have some okay sessions, but to be as open and honest and attentive with yourself and with the client to establish that as a norm. You know, we are in this together. This is a process. It's kind of an unusual, you know, we're in a special kind of unusual relationship. It's not like other relationships that you have in your life. We're in a relationship that's designed to help you solve the the problems that you're struggling with as much as possible. And we want to attend to how we're working together. And we want to attend to what's working well, when are our sessions going well, and when are they not going so well. So I think one thing to do is just to establish that norm and be explicit about it because... They don't know, clients don't know what therapy is. I mean, they may have other experiences, but uh, let's just assume it's a new client who hasn't been in therapy. You want to, you know, I think some older forms of therapies were kind of put the therapist in the master role and mis- mysterious or blank slate. And my father has always championed, and I agree with him really strongly in that. You want to demystify the process. And you want to explain how therapy works to your understanding, and you want to let them know we're in this together. And I would, part of the therapy process is, I want to check in with you frequently. How's this going? Did you know, is this going? Are you getting your needs met? Is this helpful? And let me know what's helpful and what's not helpful. And then part of that process is, you know call you Frank, just why not. Uh, Frank, um, I'm feeling like the last 20 minutes of the session or so, it feels like we somehow got a little off track or we're bogged down with a lot of details. And I'm feeling that not much is happening right now somehow. Um, and that's feels different than maybe last week where I felt like, something. We were, you know, really kind of rich in exploration. Um, but that's my experience. What, what's your experience like, Frank? So the first thing is just to establish that open dialogue and norm that w- we will talk about what w- the, how the therapy is going. Um, and I'd say kind of two primary reasons for that. One is we, you know, I may think therapy is going great. Or I may think, gee, we weren't getting much where and his experience may have been different. So uh, I want to know from him how it's going. And I want him to feel empowered that, that, that he can guide me in that way.
0: I love the way you characterize that because I was thinking that, you know, maybe from Frank's perspective, he's thinking, oh man, you know, last week we went so deep and that was so heavy. This week I felt like, you know, we had such a trusting relationship that I just need to get a few things off my chest and just kind of have that catharsis. Where in your end, it may feel like, oh, that was just a lot of details or storytelling. Whereas on his end, maybe he felt like, oh, like, uh, what a release. That was great. And for you to invite that, like you're gaining that perspective of, oh, it may not feel quite right for you, but for him, it was exactly what he needed.
1: Right. So our experience of what's happening may or may not reflect. Uh, what their experience. It reminds me of one of my father's uh, early first books, I think his second book was called Every Day Gets a Little Closer, where he and uh, the client who was a writer experiencing writer's block, he he made a kind of pretty bold proposal back then in early 70s. Uh, I, I'm not going to charge you for these sessions. And he kind of had the liberty to do that. He was a professor at Stanford. But instead, uh, we're going to you're gonna write up every session, your reflections afterwards. I'm gonna write up my reflections after every session. Every, I think six months, we'll exchange these, our write-ups. And uh, eventually they published it into a book. Every day gets a little closer. Uh, And one of the things I remember him saying was he was often startled or struck by his, his thoughts or assumptions of what was important in those sessions, maybe he thought he made a, uh, you know, a wise interpretation about something, was often very discrepant what what was powerful or moving to her. For her, what might've been the most uh, powerful was him making a comment about, you know, she had a nice dress, just something more personal. So we don't know, uh, we cannot assume that our experience is the same, although, you know, Often it is. Often we know we have a sense that things are really happening, and that does mirror their um, experience. So the second reason, and I usually, you know, explain this to clients uh, early on, maybe in the first session, that I think it's important that th- that uh, we talk about how the therapy is going, and that I share with them my experience is getting back to this idea of the therapy, whether it's group or individual or couple therapy, it's an interpersonal process, largely, not, not entirely, but uh, we're social animals and kind of the interpersonal lens or model that uh, you know I'm talking about is that when we have struggles in life, we're depressed, we're anxious, there's usually a large interpersonal component to that. For anxious, it's often anxious about other people or how other people see us. If we're depressed, it's often because our relationships are not working out, etc. cetera. So um, one of the things, uh, you know, my father advocates and, uh, you know, you, I know you do couples work, Sue Johnson's work, emotionally focused therapy is uh, family therapy enactments really getting the couples to share their experience with each other in, in the here and now. Uh, so in individual therapy, this can be done by say you have a client that, uh, you know, one of their issues, or as you've kind of formulated it together, uh, is that they really have a hard time getting their needs met. They're ple they're a pleaser, they take care of people. They're nurture, which is are very wonderful qualities, as a human being, and sometimes that's great. But at other times, you know, say say this client, um, you know, is really suffering, because she's not able to stand up for herself in in her marriage, at, at her work, etc., and you experience in the therapy sessions that she's very eager to please you, that she's very. Eager to praise you for things you've done, or accommodate you in any way, or um, so when you experience that in the session, you you may say something to her directly. You know, Mary, I, I you know it, I feel like you're so eager to to nod, to smile to agree with everything i say, to try to make me feel good. I feel like i have a hard time getting to know you. I feel like it's hard to see beneath your smile of what you want. And then we talk and then i might say, you know, i'll see how she reacts to that. How is it for me to share that with you? Does that feel comfortable? Does that feel awkward? Uh, that's just one example. But that's an example of working interpersonally with her using my reaction, my, you know, sensation, my, uh, you know, it could be countertransference, if, but there's that's, that's it's another discussion. What is, what is a therapist's experience versus countertransference? But using that in the therapy and not just sharing any reaction I have to my client, but using sharing clients judiciously and strategically uh, if I think they relate to what they are working on. And I will explain that to them. You know, this is why I'm sharing that with you because my sense is if I share my experience of how we are together, my guess is that uh, there's going to be some grains of truth in there that relate to how your other relationships are working.
0: I really appreciate how you parse that out, that um, the clinical justification for it is that it's in the best interest of the client, that it's not a wondering on your end, oh, am I doing a good job? Let me check in with the client to see if this is working, almost to kind of meet your needs or to satiate that curiosity, but really to say, is what I'm observing in the client accurate with what they're experiencing? Let me investigate that and that there's a sound you know, rationale for taking that step.
1: Yes, indeed.
0: Have you found in broaching those issues with clients that it helps the relationship to increase in the depth or to strengthen the working alliance?
1: Well, I think generally, uh, but, um, you know, overall rule is pay attention to the client and how how they respond. Uh, I mean, I recall one case, uh, it just stood out where I would I would try repeatedly over the course of time to make some kind of you know interpersonal comments observations about our relationship and this client just re- reacted very negatively defensively uh, it was very just didn't like it and I think I was a little stubborn and probably off base. And then I, every now and then I would try it again, and just didn't didn't work. And I think it was just uh, didn't work for her. It was too much. She hadn't had an experience in life where someone else, you know, she had you know very very traumatic kind of family situation, and didn't. It was so alien to her that someone else would. Sh- tune into their experiences and want to know how that was for her. It was too intimate. Um, I think towards the very end of therapy, we were able to even talk about that and process it and get some understanding of that. Um, but a couple, several years after the therapy ended, I was out taking a hike. And I, my phone rang, and I got a call out of the blue from her, just letting me know how she was doing and wanting to thank me for how helpful the therapy was. And specifically, we, talk, I believe we, we we talked. She talked about how hard it was and how hard it was when I tried to be uh, do those kind of things with her. And it was only maybe a few years later that she could really understand it, as she was able to start having. More intimate relationships with her life. She, she, she kind of clicked. Oh, that's what Victor was trying to do with me, you know. So we never, we never know. And I so back to your question. I think, um, you know, every every client is different. Every therapy is different. And we don't want to get stuck on our techniques because we think they're great or because they worked with nine out of ten other clients. We really need to be attuned to how how the therapy is going and how it's working with that client and also be open that maybe some things are seeping in and maybe even though it doesn't seem that they're able to absorb or benefit from some of the things that are happening, uh, maybe you or they will be surprised that years later there's still some ripple
0: effects. Your initial characterization of kind of that interaction was that, perhaps at the time you were a bit stubborn can you think back to other times in your career where as you reflect on it like now in this moment you could say like oh that might have been ill advised or you know that was a misstep and perhaps now you would do things differently
1: oh well <laughs> that's uh that's uh, a big question <laughs> so so much um I think, you know, I don't know if there's any way around this, but I think for me, and I think for many, many, probably most therapists, when we go through our professional training, we're taught certain things. Which we're kind of try to professionalize ourselves, and we're taught things about boundaries, and we're taught things about how to do therapy and and... And I think for many of us, we it stiffens us. We, we get a little more formal. We lose some of our spontaneity. And I think some of that is probably, I don't know if there's a way around it. Um, but when I look back on how I think I was, or at least how the vagaries of memory, but I, I think I was restrained myself, a lot of my impulses and um, wasn't as natural and didn't bring my humor or playfulness or maybe innate creativity into the sessions. And I, I think it's the journey of many therapists and I think of successful therapists that as we, we learn different theories, we, we see, seek out, hopefully we find some solid mentors And we kind of are trying out our different hats and different roles and different approaches. And I think over time we integrate them into who we are. And of course we change over time, uh, but I think the best therapists over time become themselves. My father's last book was called Becoming Myself. So it's a wonderful title, and I think we're all human beings in the process of becoming ourselves. Uh, some, some of us are more stable. Some of us make bigger changes in our lives. But in some sense, I feel like with me, I'm becoming more and more myself as I, uh, and certainly as a therapist, uh, able to integrate and bring more of my true innate self into my role into my, even not a role, into my being as a therapist. I feel like I'm more myself and less trying to be a therapist. And, you know, I, I have a very limited therapy practice these days. I spend my time running my, my uh, small company psychotherapy.net and producing training videos uh, and, you know, managing my staff and writing emails. Um, but, uh, I would say, you know, <laughs> biggest, you know, I, I, again, I don't know if I could say it's a mistake or a stubbornness, but I, I, uh, I think, um, uh, well, actually I've just been in discussions with Harry Aponte, well-known family, structural family therapist, and he's championed an, a training approach in, at Drexel University called person of the therapist. And we're in initial discussions. Hopefully, we're going to be able to film this process. Uh, uh, um, it's a year-long process with students where in the classroom, they work on and explore with, with the faculty and with their fellow students what, they, what he has coined their signature themes, which is just the, a way of thinking about what are their, some of their core struggles and how do those play out? In learning to be a therapist and in doing sample demonstrations uh, uh, of therapy, and where do they get stuck, and how does their their personhood, their signature theme, their struggles, how does that limit them, and how can they work on them to become better therapists? And I just think that's so wonderful. I just think that should be, you know, some form of that should be inherent in any training program, and should be inherent in our development as a therapist I mean how can you not uh, want to work on yourself and understand yourself uh, your tool uh, your keyboard uh, if you're going to help other people
0: it sounds like recently you've come to a deeper understanding of yourself and that you've been able to more fully integrate yourself into the therapy session what are some of the ways that that's benefited you or you've noticed kind of a market improvement in the relationships you've had with your clients because you're more yourself as a therapist?
1: I would say I don't feel I was a natural born therapist. I think uh, by that I mean, I think some therapists had the experience growing up that they were just caretakers, that they were attentive to the needs of others, that friends in high school would always come up to them to to bounce ideas off or to share their problems. And, you know, to, just to be perfectly honest, that wasn't my experience. I think I was caught up in my own struggles. I had, I had a hard time connecting with people. I was not someone that I think most people gravitated towards. Um, so, you know, in, the, in that kind of definition of warmth or empathy I wasn't overflowing in that. I think what I has served me well as therapy is I, I was introspective and I'm I'm observant and curious about people. But uh, so one thing I think I've had to learn is to get more in touch with and access to that kind of more vulnerable and sensitive part of myself and to be able to show that more with my clients and certainly with my friends and my loved ones. Um, you know, I had, I've had i had over 25 year experience of co-leading a group with a, a colleague of mine and a good friend, MJ Paris. And she is much, much more what I would call the natural or prototypal therapist, just a very warm uh, feeling, intuitive person that people are drawn to. And it's been just a wonderful, you know, 25-year learning experience for me and for both of us to work together as we co-lead a group. And I see that, you know, we complement each other very well because she is better at just connecting with with clients and feeling them and helping them go deeper. I mean, I think I'm good at that too. And I'm better at observing all of the things going on in the group. It's very complex. seven or eight clients in the group and different interactions and being able to observe that on a metal level and track what's going on and make strategic interventions. And then one of the things I've, you know, learned is to come to some greater acceptance of I am not like her and she is not like me. And I am never going to be, you know, the most warm and fuzzy person or therapist, but uh, I do care about other people and can find ways to connect. And so I've, at the same time, I, I think we do have an obligation to ourselves and our clients to work on and deepen and strengthen those areas, which we think are deficits or can be enhanced. And I think I've tried to do that but also to accept who we are. And by, by accepting the fact that, uh, okay, I'm, I'm a little bit in my head and I'm not, uh, I'm not her and I'm not like some other therapist, but I am like myself. Just accepting that has allowed me to, I think, be more comfortable in my skin and, and be, be warmer and let people experience me as I am
0: has that made for the counseling experience to be more enjoyable or fulfilling on your end?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Cause I, I certainly recall earlier on in my career having, um, feeling deficient in those ways I described feeling, you know, bored at times when I couldn't connect with a client or feeling I'm not getting the results I wanted or, or, uh, noticing that I had way too many clients who, you know, I had files of clients who came for a session or two and didn't continue, and I could only assume I somehow wasn't finding a way to connect with them in a way that felt good to them and felt, you know, f- you know f- for those clients that I failed. Um, and so being more comfortable with myself. Yes. I, it's much, it's, it's a, I, th- I think I've allowed myself to be more spontaneous and find different ways to help clients and connect with them. So I get better results overall. You know, I have, I've certainly had failures over the years, um, but also not, you know, it, I don't think it feels good to anyone when we have these critical voices in our mind saying, I, I should be, I should be like this, you know. Albert Ellis said, "Referred as you're shitting yourself," you know. Uh, uh, But uh, you know, or I'm not good at this, or you know, I should be better at this. Yes, I think we want. There's a fine line between, you know, say honestly uh, appraising and recognizing. I, I, I think I can improve in this area, and then work doing what you can to improve it. Versus versus saying, gee, what a what a screw up I am. What a no, you know, no good nick I am.
0: Well, I'd love to go back to the work that you do at psychotherapy.net and the instructional training videos that you have, just a vast library of. You know, in our correspondence you spoke to the value and benefit of novice counselors or students observing a master demonstrating a theory. Could you speak more to what that benefit is and how you've seen students uh, grow and progress as a result of your videos?
1: Absolutely. So we are in a very strange profession. I mean, we're about the only profession I can think of, uh, and this is not uniformly the case, but we tend to have very little direct observation of our masters, of our trainers, of our our mentors, uh, of our teachers we may never see them actually do therapy and very little most training program i think very very little do actually people see us work now I think there are some more innovative training programs where where that's not the case but still if you compare it to any other profession i mean if if you're you know you know you're an attorney you're working in an office with other attorneys you're seeing them work. They're reviewing your work. If you go to trial, you're maybe a junior on the bench and you're observing your mentors. If you're an accountant, if you're an actor, if you're a, you know, can you imagine, I always think of the example, can you imagine in dental school, you know, you go to a classes, you read a textbook about how to do a, a, something basic, a filling, and then finally they say, okay, go, go do a filling and you go into a closed room, you do a filling, and then a week later you meet with your supervisor and they say uh, hey how did it go how do you think it went you know <laughs> um, my uh, former student and uh, mentor and my friend now t- colleague tony rumenier who wrote uh has written a couple of books "The deliberate practice for psychotherapists and taking the idea of of deliberate practice which is the study of how people become experts in various fields and apply it to therapy. And he, he kind of makes the silly, but, but pointed example. Imagine you were uh, learning painting. And then you would go to your supervisor and say, you know, I, uh, I, I did this painting. I put a lot of blue in it. Do you think I put too much blue in it without even showing them the painting? It's just absurd. And that's too much of our training is like that. So the kind of original genesis and uh, is uh, for the videos is here, it's not the only solution. I, I think there should be there are a lot of ways that we should be observing therapists and having our work observed. But one very powerful way is to record master therapists doing sessions, either with real clients, often the case, uh, sometimes with kind of reenactments but the reenactments are role plays that tend to be very realistic. Um, uh, uh, seeing them do therapy, single sessions, and now we're getting to many video productions where there are multiple sessions and we're editing them that down and adding commentary and explanation, so you can learn the different skills of uh, therapy in different uh, situations and you you know you can learn certain things from a book you can learn theory you can read some transcripts maybe and but there's such a richness to watching actual sessions because so much is nonverbal it's how the therapist looks at the client how the th- client looks at the therapist what's the facial expression what's the body language what's the connection between them. I mean, you can have, you could read the two same lines in a transcript that sound like a very nice exchange. You see it and you hear the tone of voice and you can hear there's a rupture there. Or conversely, the client is just melting into what the therapist is saying and it really was meaningful. Uh, There's the pacing. There's so much you can see in a video that you can't you can't get from certainly a book or a case consultation so just being able to see that and and learn all the different things that happen in therapy uh, i think is extremely useful and it you know we learn often by imitation by by uh, kind of adapting or trying out oh god look what he does he he brings humor into a session I could do that, or he ah he he helps the client just take a minute before they respond to really kind of breathe into their experience. And yeah, I think that, that looks like makes a lot of sense. Or he explains things in a way to a client. He really takes the time to make sure they understand and, and check in with themselves. So so many things are happening. Uh, that you can learn from a video uh, that, yeah, I mean, I hear all the time from from people who watch our videos, from professors, from students, how incredibly useful they are in, in many ways.
0: Reflecting on the feedback you've received, are there almost like some suggestions or guidelines that you could recommend to other instructors out there who are thinking about using your tapes as a way of kind of bridging the gap between how you characterized earlier someone saying like, I should be that, or I should be that feeling like they're falling so short of the example set forth by the master. And then on their end, kind of the evolution of them becoming more themselves as just a novice counselor. Do you have any recommendations for kind of some best practices with integrating your videos?
1: Yes. Well, actually, so we, we sell our videos basically to two broad markets. Individual therapists can sign up and most of them access our videos via uh, kind of a sub- membership, which is kind of like Netflix for therapists, where they can pay a you know pay a monthly or yearly fee and then have access to our library of over 300 videos. Um, and then we uh, also offer them to institutions and the pri- primarily universities, but also clinics and hospitals. And so f- for institutions, when they access our videos, our platform one of the things we provide is an instructor's manual. So when you ask me that question, when I think about it, we we have a series of uh, instructor questions that they can, you know, and, and tips for using the videos. So uh, in each of our video, we have suggestions for that. So, and one of the typical questions, you know, a lot of the questions that we, we encourage professors to ask um, are really watching the video, what do you notice? what resonates with you, what feels like something that you could use, what feels like something wouldn't feel right for you at all, and why or why not. So for, for the students to observe it and then reflect on that, how that feels to them. You know, if it's a very um, kind of active interventionist model where you're actually instructing uh, a client to do certain things, that, and maybe your, your training or your inclination is to be a little more passive. Uh, again, there's no right or wrong, but if you uh, uh, say we have a video on uh, cognitive therapy for phobias, and it, it's doing uh, uh, in vivo, it's kind of exposure therapy, you know, some therapists, you know, where you're telling a client to to do something, to actually put a bag over their, their uh, face if, or hold their breath if they've had some, we have some where they had well, a fear of flying or someone who had a traumatic incident uh, scuba diving. Uh, how would it feel to actually lead a client through some exposure therapy? Maybe you're not a CBT or be- behaviorally oriented, but maybe for these types of clients, you know, this is really going to be very effective. Uh, what's it like for you to even think about doing something like that? And w- if it's uncomfortable for you, why? So you want to kind of expand your range of re- repertoire, but also try to find what, what fits for you. Uh, another question we might ask is, if you imagined being a client of that therapist, what about their style seems would resonate with you? What would not? Uh, so that's uh, that's one type of question. The other is, you know, we also have a, a clip-making ability, so a professor can just choose a five-minute segment of our video and have it kind of queued up to play in class. So uh, maybe, um, well, going back to my uh, original discussion of Jim Bugenthal, one of the things he did would, you know, as I mentioned, he would make process comments, and by that he would say, um, you know, I know you were talking about something that sounded very painful, but I noticed you smiled. Uh, That's kind of an intrusive comment. When I first heard him do that, I thought, oh, wow, I don't know if I could do that. That seems very intrusive because it's not something we typically do in everyday conversation. Uh, You know, we don't make kind of those process comments, you know, except in our maybe most intimate relationships or maybe maybe with a, a parent and child, you might say, don't roll your eyes at me, but he, then it's kind of a demand. Um, so what, what what are you aware of when you see him make that kind of intervention? And would that feel comfortable to you or not? And if if not, why not? So you can pick apart and find specific skills or s- specific interventions in videos and really both use that for training students to learn those techniques, but also, and part of that training is what feels, could you do that? Or what would it feel like to try that out? And then we also have role-player skill-building exercises uh, so that, you know, students or trainees can practice these certain techniques uh, with each other. Uh, You'd want to practice them before just trying them with clients. I, I think generally it's a good thing to do.
0: You've had such an experience with getting to film and witness these masters firsthand, and you know, being the son of Irving Yalom, and just like, you know, being around these masters. When you reflect back on these many decades of just being exposed to such greatness, what are some of your major takeaways with those experiences?
1: These people that we consider masters, I think there's a level of authenticity about them. There's a congruence of who they are and who they are as a therapist. I mean, a colleague I've gotten to know well and become friends with, Reed Wilson, an anxiety specialist. He's just, he's he's obsessed, he's fixated, he's passionate about anxiety, that's what he does. And he's, you know, pretty, pretty CBT oriented. He has his own twist on it. Uh, I'm not, you know, that's not my main orientation, but he's just great and he's funny you know, and I appreciate humor for sure. So you just have a sense that he cares about clients. He's willing to take risks. He's funny. He's authentic. You know, you know you know who he is. And I think with, you know, Sue Johnson, with I don't know, Peter Levine, with Otto Kernberg, uh, with Irving Polster, uh, uh, with uh, we've done recently done a series on suicide assessment intervention with John Summers Flanagan. All of these people, you, you just have a sense of who they are as a person. There's not a, there's not a stiffness about them. There's a, a ease, a passion, a caring. Uh, and again, going back to another theme, when I've seen them work with clients, there's generally an aliveness. They're, they're, they want to make something happen. It's not like ego driven that they're going to do something or force a client to, to fit into their protocol, but They want to try to make something uh, meaningful happen as much as possible in every session with a client. Um, And part of that is, uh, again, is looking, attending to what's happening in the session, being very acutely uh, attuned to what's happening in the session. Is the client really... Are they working? Are they trying their best to, to explore or to try something new? And and if not, uh, you know, check that out, attend to that. Now, they all have very different ways of working. And Peter Levine is just a master. He's, you know, he developed somatic experiencing therapy. It's it's a, it's a somatic therapy. It's very different than almost any other kind of verbal therapy. But you just, his sense of presence and his sense of attunement to the client. I mean, if if he, if he brought that in, if he had a very different orientation, you would still, uh, he, he, I think he would be very effective at whatever approach he took because of his sense of attunement, his dedication, his commitment.
0: Was there anything that you'd want to expand on or that we haven't touched on that you'd want to share with the listeners?
1: I, I think, you know, this is a very rich profession. Uh, I think we're lucky uh, in many ways if we can make a living being a therapist uh, because I think there's something inherently meaningful about what we're doing. Whatever is going on in the world Uh, you know, things, you know, aren't, aren't always good and whatever's going on in our life, which isn't always good, you know, if we have, we're seeing a handful or a full practice of clients, you know, if we're worth our salt at all, we're likely helping, you know, most of our clients, most of the time making some meaningful changes in their life. Mm -hmm. Um. And that degree of that change will vary tremendously, and there's something inherently meaningful about that. And I think some of us are more drawn to organizational work or political work, or you know, building a company or taking care of their family. Uh, we all have different needs, uh, but I think people that are drawn to therapy, you know, find it inherently meaningful to help one other human being make meaningful changes in their life so that's that's the good thing about being a therapist you know there are downsides like any other profession economically there's a lot of challenges you know getting through school getting debt uh you know in expensive areas of the country it's very challenging um and it can be very isolating i think that's a real downside if you're primarily if you're in solo private practice uh, even if you're in some kind of group practice, if you're spending most of your time alone, one-on-one with clients, uh, I think that's a real occupational hazard. For some people, it's, you know, if some, some people don't, you know, are okay with that, they have a very rich family life or social life, or they're okay. But for many people, I think it's a challenge. Um, and I, I really advise any kind of, any therapist, but certainly people kind of contemplating entering the career or early on in the career to try to really build some structures into their life to counter that, to have at least one or more, you know, consultation groups, peer support groups, to have colleagues that they, you know, can readily pick up the phone or meet with in person and, and discuss their cases or discuss their just personal experience of being a therapist and you know, you know, when we're going through really difficult life experiences, you know, divorce, breakup, death of loved ones, it's really can be very hard to have the energy and attention and awareness to continue our work. And when t- do we make a decision? Sometimes we need to take a break. That's very difficult. If, especially if your, your livelihood depends on your, you know, your, um, your clients, if you are lucky enough like yourself to have a day job as a professor or in a clinic or you know myself to get income from this uh, psychotherapy videos uh, and do practice on the side, I think that's a wonderful thing. Uh, because uh, for me, when I wasn't entirely financially dependent on my clients, that freed me up. If a client canceled or a client was talking about terminating, it didn't trigger anxiety about money. Um, now, not everyone is in that s- situation, and some people just love being in a full-time practice. But uh, that's not always possible. But I think that's that's really a nice uh, situation if you can work that out. Um, so, and be involved. In your ongoing personal development, certainly therapy, individual therapy can be very helpful. and uh, hopefully you've any therapist has had some individual therapy and will continue to get therapy intermittently throughout their life as appropriate. Uh, group therapy, I, I think every therapist should be have at least once experience being in group therapy. It's very different than individual and you know, uh, you can learn things about yourself in group that you won't learn in individual. Certainly, I've had clients in individual for years, and then I put them in group, and I see whole other sides to them, and they get to work on different facets of themselves. Um, I would say t- the same advice to any human being. Find a way to live as fulfilled a life as possible. Find uh, hobbies. Uh, you, know, find, you know, Have a physical practice whether it's walking or gardening or playing tennis or, you know, I, th- I think sitting all day long is, is, is not good, you know, so attend to your physical body. Uh, and uh, I think, I think bringing some somatic work into your work as a therapist, I, I, I think uh, learning to broaden your repertoire. So it's beyond just words. I think uh, I'm, I lean towards that. Um, uh, So those are some things uh, that come to my mind. (laughs) Relationships, of course, Uh, make sure you attend to the relationships in your life. Don't, don't get all your interpersonal needs. Don't try to get your interpersonal needs from your work. You will hopefully, hopefully your work will be very rich and meaningful, but your work is not the place to satisfy your own interpersonal needs and cravings. Uh,
0: I just want to thank you so much for your time. And uh, as you know, as someone who's listened to the show, I like to end every episode with asking the guest to think about a time in their life where they thought about something in maybe a negative or a problematic way. They just had to step back and kind of reframe that reality. And it had a very positive impact on their life.
1: Nothing's immediately popping to my mind, but I am going to... What I'm gonna take advantage of this opportunity is try to demonstrate what I was talking about with Jim Bugenthal referring to searching. I'm just gonna take a minute to, may not be the most exciting for audio purposes, but I'm gonna take a minute to just reflect inward and see what comes to me because nothing's jumping out. Here's something. When anyone who's looked at psychotherapy.net, and you mentioned it before the interview, that I, I do draw cartoons, therapy cartoons, on the website. And I, um, I did not grow up, you know, doing art or thinking of myself as artistic in in any way. Really, I did some creative things. I was a magician in high school and. But at one of the workshops, actually, at Bugenthal, I, I have a hard time sitting still. And I started sketching some little cartoons out, and just stick figures. And one, one of my first ones was um, a cactus lying on a sofa. And uh, you know he was the patient. And he said, well, uh, we didn't really, I didn't really come from what you would call a, a touchy-feely family. And so when I launched an early version of of psychotherapy.net, I started, uh, I wanted to put some cartoons on it, but I I felt I didn't know how to draw. And um, so I hired a couple artists. I had a few, my first cartoons, one was um, a baby kind of baby with a beard and diapers and kind of a face like Freud. And he was stepping on a banana peel and it was, uh, the caption was Freud's first slip. But uh, I had a girlfriend at the time and she saw my little stick figures and she said, well, you, you, you have kind of a primitive drawing style. Uh, I don't know. Why don't you draw your own cartoons? And I, okay, okay, I'll give it a try. So I, I started drawing very little primitive drawings and, uh, putting them on the website, uh, including the cactus one. And um, and then I realized, well, these really aren't very good drawings. So I, uh, I heard a friend of ours give me a few little cartooning lessons. And and then I uh, uh, started, I took a painting class and I started doing, uh, trying to do figurative paintings. I, I still don't draw very well. i And now I do cartoons. I have a graphic artist on staff. So she takes my little primitive drawings and, and makes them look good. But I've gone on to carving, doing wood carving bowls and spoons with with uh, hand tools. And then recently I've got into doing welding, big kind of sculptural projects. Um, so that it's probably been in the last now, 20 years now, but it's opened up. Uh, I, I have to, I guess, give my ex-girlfriend credit for suggesting that I draw, because that kind of started me on a whole, Whole journey towards, uh, you know, I don't call myself an artist. I just play around with things, and every now and then I produce something I, I like. But it's kind of opened my eyes up to this idea of creativity, you know. And I and I think of therapy is is a creative process. I mean, in this interview, everything we do in life. I mean, I don't know what I'm going to say the next sentence, and I don't you don't know what you're going to ask me. I mean, you think about therapy; it's even if you have kind of a protocol. Or some more cookbooky approach. Uh, it's a creative enterprise. We don't know what's going to happen minute to minute, and certainly life, I think, if lived well, is a creative enterprise.
0: The Reframe is a production of the International Association of Marriage and Family Counselors. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Join me next month on the Reframe.